Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a doof media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward, Wild Bow's return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman and, well, this is it. This is the moment where I introduce my co-host. I just need, I just need to seize this moment. I can't just let it... And I'm just- Scott Daly. And this is the weekly podcast where you and I eagerly dive into Wabbo's world of badass lawyers, evil teachers, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week, Beacon comes to an end as we discuss the arc's two interludes. First, we finally see inside Natalie's head and realize that Scott was 100% right and Matt is super embarrassed. Then we move over to William Giles, a.k.a. Scapegoat, who's recruited for teacher for some ominous plans. Matt, these are two pretty different chapters that I think kind of encompass the different sides of, of what interludes can accomplish. The first is like a, a extremely character focused kind of character study chapter. Um, we really zoom in on Natalie and, and who she is and how she defines herself. And then the conflicts and events of the chapter you know, push against those definitions. And then she's kind of changed by the end of it a little bit. Um, and then the second while following scapegoat, and we get to learn a little bit about him is a much more plot driven chapter. It's doing a lot of the heavy lifting and moving and setting things up for the future, giving us exposition, setting up some of these future conflicts. So two kind of very different chapters, but what, what did you think about them? Yeah, I think you're, you're right in your assessment. I mean, there's definitely character stuff going on in the scapegoat chapter, but sure, as yeah. you said, it's more, it's more set up. It's more introduction, um, whereas, as you said, Natalie has um, a com- a rather complete story. You know, it's it sets up and it pays off within the same within the same chapter. Um, yeah, so uh, both both really fun chapters, both really fun interludes, and um, h- highlighting kind of in different ways why I think the interlude technique is a great way of um, kind of framing the web serial format. Yeah, that's a good way of putting that. I like that. Yeah. I'm excited to talk about them. Yeah, me too. All right, a couple announcements, or I guess one announcement first. So if you are a patron of Doof Media, the voting for the fourth fan art contest is live now. Head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash doofmedia, to vote for your favorite. Voting will be open until Monday at 8 a.m., and the winner will be announced on next week's show. I don't know why I picked 8 a.m. I think I was just literally seven days from when I opened the thread, which happened to be Monday at 8 a.m., Makes sense. I mean, I mean, any time is just as good as any as far as yeah. I'm concerned. Yeah. You know. um, so discussion question, spot community spotlight where we read what people wrote from last week's thread. Uh, so the question last week was um, basically we pointed out this episode, the ways in which Wild Bill uses his skills at pace and tension to take a scene that doesn't involve a lot of traditional action set pieces and make a figurative page turner. What are some of your favorite examples of how Wildbow has done this in other areas of Worm or Ward? Um, and we got a bunch of great answers as usual. Yeah, um, I think we got some twig answers too, but obviously we can't discuss yeah. those on here for my sake because yeah. it's meaningless to me. But right, we'll, sk- we'll skip those. Yeah. Um, so first from Anti Chris, like that name, uh, the the bullying meeting with Taylor and Danny versus the bullies and the school administrators. Uh, while it's true that Wildbo continued to grow as an author after this, and his later displays of his talent are therefore more refined, seeing a trick that has been improved upon uh, is never as impressive as seeing it the first time. I think that's an interesting sentiment. Uh, the fir- the, they, they go on to say, the first time I read that scene, I had no idea what to expect from Wildbo as a writer. It was early in the story. I had heard a lot of good things, uh, but um, 
you know, but, but basically they didn't have very high expectations. And then when this scene came, it, it completely sold them on the story. Um, and, and, and they say, yeah, he, he got better over time, but this, this point coming so early in worm was a really big selling point for the story. I think that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I like that a lot. I think that's a really pivotal chapter and part of the story in the early going. So for that to work so well on, on antichrist, that's great. Yeah. And it is just like these others where it's just people sitting around the table arguing and uh Mm -hmm. it is really tense tense and you're not sure what's going to happen you're not sure similar to victoria you know kind of you know going right up against the line of going too far we see taylor do that in that case and of course we'll see taylor cross that line many times in the future but and there she goes right up against it and you're like oh god oh god is she gonna do it it's it's really a great moment yeah yeah it's such a great moment in fact that our next answer reg vlas uh gives the same chapter (laughs) Uh, 5.4 he says Um, but they also mention another one uh, which is chapter 20.5 which is the quote unquote battle in the cafeteria where uh, Taylor confronts I think it's Defiant and Dragon right and um, yeah yeah, and and some of the other awards Um, that's a really great chapter too and and again like there's not a lot of action-y action in that it's just kind of tension by will or they will they or won't they fight kind of tension right and it's yeah i think that's a good answer too i really i love that chapter i love that entire arc it's great yeah me too um wanson um and also ethical ham jimmies also chose this scene uh they chose the martin family dinner um and uh, they they point out that there was a a whole thread titled martin (laughs) dinner hype thread so basically like Everyone, the the whole readership was looking forward to this family dinner yeah. so much, and it's like this is a superhero that fighting story. But yeah, everyone everyone was so psyched and, and anxious about a family sitting down to dinner, which managed to not disappoint at all, despite the level of hype, of course. Yep. So, um, yeah, like, and, and they, they kind of talk about how that was done. You know, it starts out light. Um, we've got, we've got golden lights. We've got an artificial feeling to the house. We've got an uncanny Valley like behavior from the parents. Um, we're, we're put at ease by Kenzie showing Victoria, her room and the collectibles and or like the tent that the, there, there's just like a, there's a couple of weird beats, like the picture with Con, Kanzi on it. Um, and the weird beats just keep you maybe subconsciously on edge, but otherwise you're actually being lulled into a sense of security. And then everyone's being very polite, putting plates on the table. And then it's like what record scratch <laughs> yeah you know yeah. so yeah yeah that, that one's really great again so great that lamerni also picked the same thing man i have the easy job this week i just <laughs> this person yeah. agrees with the other. they also mentioned the kenzie dinner scene and how well it it held and controlled the tension um but they did give an honorable mention to some of the infestation interludes especially theo's bitches and amy's they say which is uh some really good points i i think you know i think we have another person in these answers that talks about Amy's interlude a little bit. So we'll save that. But yeah, I mean, I think I kind of want to go back and read Theo's interlude because I was very unclear of him as a character at the time and, and knowing who he becomes later, I think it would make me appreciate that interlude so much more. Um, so I want to go revisit that one. Yeah. That's a good idea. And yeah, I I remember those because that was basically a series, a sequence of extremely tense chapters where there's really not a whole lot of violence because, the point of it is that you're setting up future promise of violence. Yeah. Sarah Penguin says uh, it, it, it's hard to pick one because there's 
um, so many, uh, but they're going to pick the worst hug in the world um, in interlude 11H. Uh, the chapter starts with a small amount of tension from Amy finding out who her dad is, which is followed by uh, Bonesaw making her break her rules and forcing her to kill. Bonesaw then gets chased away and takes the tension with her as she can't do anything for now, but it makes everything seem safe. And just when Wildbow has lulled you into a false sense of security, Amy uses her power and from, and, and, uh, from how the two characters react from how Amy and Victoria react to it. You know, something big has happened, but um, it takes a while to find out what happened. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think um, th- that you can't underestimate that releasing of tension moment where you calm your audience down and then um, hit them, you know, kind of out of nowhere with something else. Um, I mean, horror movies use this kind of technique all the time. It's not it's not the same kind of tension. It's not the same kind of shock, but it is a very similar thing where you kind of build and build and build and then you release it a little bit. And then just when you think it's OK, we're, we're moving on from this this moment of tension and extreme conflict. That's bam. And I think that just could, that little twist the knife really, really helps to to sell the moment, I think. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that's definitely a something that something to to learn from Wildo here. Yeah. All right. So next, Sanjay says uh, Rain's five point D interlude. Um, their they, their email was really great. I unfortunately can't read it all, but there was parts of it I wanted to read. Um, they they basically outlined the, the section they want to talk about is the block of prose from when Rain wakes up from his cluster dream all the way to riding out of there with his arms crossed for most of the trip. Um, starting with Rain waking up to someone gently caressing his hair. Um, and then he says he naively thought that was a tender moment with Aaron, but of course it's revealed to be Mama Mathers um, and, and her kind of presence here, her never ending presence there. Um, they talked about how this, they echoed kind of what we talked about with some of the syntax of the note that she said, like the, the listing of bud in the note and how that reinforces um, not only like, friend zone ish, but they, they also mentioned that, um, when you're, when you are into someone like rain is you like inspect and interpret every single word of, of everything they send you. And that was a, a very realistic moment for, for Sanjay. Um, yeah. And they just go through that whole scene kind of line by line and, and talk about how, why, and how it was so effective at doing everything it was. It's a really, really great email. I appreciate you sending that Sanjay. And that's, I mean, the rain interludes, I remember when we got to arc five, and we just kind of kept getting more of them and they kept surprising us because it's like we got one near the beginning of the chapter and then a couple chapters went by and it's like, oh, another. And then by then you're seeing a pattern. So you're like, OK, when's the when's the next one going to be? And you're just not ready for it. Um, it was a, a great, a great collection of interludes. Yeah, no, I I, I would like to reread those, too, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, the final uh, comment from Shinichi 07 they pull out Victoria's first session with Dr. Darnell in 7.2 Torch. Uh, just the way it slowly builds up from Darnell asking if she wants something to drink before they begin and leading into the unspoken barbs from Victoria about him not being Jessica and how Jessica was the only real person she trusted and felt understood by. Um, and then there's this sense of dread that keeps building as you slowly have Victoria venting about how wrong her life went, finally capping off with, the walls crumbling enough to finally kind of open up and say that she doesn't feel like she she's human anymore. Um, and, and basically you're, you're being put in Darnell's position here 
uh, while also simultaneously getting like a, a fully deep sense of Victoria's pain that we haven't quite seen yet at this point in the story. And then Victoria ends the session saying that she's trying to make sure no one ever goes through what happened to her again and she'll fight even if she knows she can't win with all of, um, you know, and, and, and like it, en it ends basically with Victoria's feeling of satisfaction that she made Darnell understand how, how you know, what the, the situation by, quote, gutting him and how kind of visceral that comes off as. Um, yeah, I, I, I thought that's a very that's a very unusual scene. And um, um, I, I like that that was pulled out because it, it didn't quite apply this the tension in the way that I was thinking. But it definitely um, manipulates your emotions, uh, you know, it, using a lot of the same tools, I think. Yeah. And I like like it's a different there's been several therapy scenes throughout the story so far, but this is a very different feeling one. Um, and the, the way it works, the way I think that just reflects Darnell's different uh, method of therapy here, that this does not go the way we've seen all the Jessica Yamada scenes go. And I, I like that it's, it's showing he's a different person showing it's a different strategy showing, you know, Victoria is a different kind of patient too. And I, I, that's a great pick. I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and once again, Matt, I think we had some people who agreed on things, um, especially the Kenzie scene. I'm not surprised that we got multiple people saying that. But for the most part, everyone picked a different scene. And I love that that happens. I love that we can say, tell me about your favorite of this example. And once again, everyone has different scenes that they like. And I think they're all great answers. Like, I mean, there's no wrong answer for this thing. But I, I just like I liked reading every single one of these and being like, yeah that's a really great moment. And that's kind of exactly what we were going for with our, our question. So well done everyone. Yeah, that was, that was, that was great. I love those answers. Yeah. All right. So just some general discussion stuff. Now we saw in the thread that wasn't directly related to the question. Uh, Asgar Zeigel um, mentioned something that I, I think they're absolutely right on that. We maybe didn't call out enough in last week's reading. Um, we've talked about how Victoria is constantly judging Natalie for her fashion, but as Garzigo points out that th her, her judgment has become less barbed over time. And especially in some of the, the later readings we saw last week, um, she does point out some fashion faux pas, but it's, there's, there's less, um, you know, force behind it. And I think that, I think that's a great way of showing how Victoria has like slowly over time kind of warmed up to this person a little bit. Um, and has, has maybe still doesn't like her, but, but she's kind of slowly proved her worth. And so she's attacking her less. They, they mentioned that, that we often talk about Taylor's physical description of people reflecting whether or not she liked them. And Victoria's fashion sense description is very similar to that. Um, and, and noted, noting that change in Natalie over time and in Victoria's description is important because yeah, I think she's warmed up on her. Yeah, that's a good point. Because like with the belt, she could have she could have said like, you know, the outfit was ruined by the fact that the belt didn't match the shoes. Yeah. Um, but instead, she said it it almost worked. You know. So right. Yeah, I mean, that's taking yeah. That's that's saying, that's giving the credit where it is. It's taking it from a totally different perspective and angle and a much more positive one. So yeah. yeah. I think from the from this chapter we're going to talk about today, it does seem like Victoria has changed her tune about Natalie. Yeah. At least by the end of this chapter. I I think so. Yeah, for sure. And then uh, in addition, uh, Muga Sofer points out that while Victoria and Breakthrough certainly did reveal the truth of Scion and Gold Morning, they put a whole lot of spin on it, specifically talking about how Tristan calls the tr conflict drive uh, subtle, if it is there at all, 
uh, compared to Victoria admitting earlier in the, uh, earlier in the, in the in the story the likelihood of cape groups exploding with collateral damage and frequent conversations amongst capes you know about how we're volatile the nature of parahumans is to wreak destruction on others oh no no we defeated our <laughs> we, we we don't have that problem anymore yeah i mean i think I, I think that's a good call and something we probably should have brought up when we were talking that yes they told the truth but they they did a very positive spin on the truth um the most kind of charitable view of of parahumans as possible um, and it is it is kind of funny to see how they're in private amongst each other conversations about the nature of who they are and their powers and and their kind of troublesome like existence as a, a, a group differs with how they defined it when they were sitting in front of cameras trying to defend their I'm not going to call it race. It's weird, but they're they're people. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. No, I, 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 and they weren't really, I don't even know if they were intentionally spinning it or if they no, were just like, that's so. how you, you just get defensive when you feel criticized like that. No, I mean, there is spin in the second chapter we're going to be talking about tonight that I think feels much more intentional than any spin that mm-hmm. Breakthrough did. Yeah. Yeah. And we were in Victoria's head enough to know that she wasn't calculating things quite that delicately. No. Yeah. All right. So let's move on into these chapters, these two interludes. All right. All right, so the first chapter, 8.x. Uh, I'm going to pretend that we don't know who this character is because who, who, the <laughs> the interlude doesn't tell us immediately. Who could it be? Which is, a, which is something that the next chapter does too. So our mysterious interlude character stands outside the Breakthrough Clubhouse trying to get her thoughts sorted out. She stands in the cold, her warm breath fogging up her glasses, turning the whole world into an orange smear. So I want to point out that the way I found out who the character was is they mention her puffy jacket. So I think we've been so primed to see Natalie by the clothes she's wearing that before they even said her name, I was like, oh, yeah, it's Natalie because it's the puffy jacket. That's I think I think I think that's <laughs> wonderful because, I mean, it fits if it's our expectation, right? Like every time we've seen Natalie in the story, we've been in Victoria's head and therefore we've seen her by a description of what she's wearing. And the interlude starts off immediately with a description of what she's wearing. It talks about yeah. the jacket she was wearing earlier. So it's like, boom. Yeah, right now. And, and I, I think I, I actually didn't pick up on the on the jacket, um, but I did I, I did pick up on something shortly after that. Like, it's not like the interlude is really, you know, playing that coy with it. But neither no. does the interlude say like Natalie fixed her glasses you know it, right so anyway. i think there's i mean like yeah there's a there's like a moment of um kind of orientation that it it kind of purposely does it this the first sentence is not natalie does this but it, yeah. it, it doesn't hide it it's it is not like the reveal in the next chapter at all yeah yeah so, yeah, yeah definitely so the, before we move on i want to talk about that orange smear because i think matt this is kind of a recurring motif we see at least at least one other time in this chapter possibly two more times um and, and the, that orange gold color that natalie is kind of seeing the world reflected in so the meaning of this should be pretty clear to us eight arcs into the story like we've we've dealt with gold and amber and and those colors and that imagery a lot in the story it's like what victoria establishes in the first line of the book it represents gold morning it represents the the, the like this omnipresent awareness of the end of the world that kind of hovers over everything and everyone. Um, but I, I think 
it here in this chapter is a little more specific. And I think one of the things we need to do when we're we're dealing with symbols in our in analysis is, is not just decipher what the symbol means and or what it is, but why here? Why was it used here? So why in this chapter, in this Natalie chapter, is this gold amber motif, which Wildboat has used again and again throughout the book, like hit home here a lot? And I think the answer is my interpretation of this was Natalie, along with the rest of the non-capes, has just learned the truth about gold warning. Like they've just learned the truth about Scion, the truth about capes. They've just learned all this stuff. Her whole world has now been recontextualized through this new information. And now as she's as she's pondering th- these things, as she's trying to work through this information she just learned, she's seeing we're, and we're seeing that that kind of glow surrounding everything, maybe more than it ever had been. Like, I think gold morning was always important to to non capes in general because, well, the world ended, Matt, but it was always something much more specific to parahumans. And now that specificity has been shared with the rest of the world. And I really like this because Natalie never like directly narrates about Scion very much about gold morning. I think she mentions it like once to uh to Tony. Is that the, his the right name? Did I, yeah, okay. that's right. But I think I think you can kind of tell it's there in the background. It's like in the subtext of her narration. And that amber glow reinforces that subtext. I think it's I think it's really wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I mean I, I love this idea. Um as as someone who who wears glasses usually uh, I, I was I, I kind of enjoyed the description of like the the glasses fogging up and her sort of like ineffectually trying to keep them from fogging up. And them being fogged up, making the whole world seem obscure and and indistinct to her. And, you know, the, the, the metaphor here, I think, and, and, you know, just kind of to riff on what you said, is that the, her whole her whole vision of, of the world is not only tinted, but uh, obscured and, and even blocked by uh, the intensity of this of this. Um, this new information, yeah. this new this new perspective, if you will, it's it's such an intensely new perspective that it actually is blinding uh, to her. And I appreciate so much that the book kind of trusts you to to get there, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think you can tell Natalie's reeling. You can tell by her narration that she's like processing and trying to understand all this stuff, but it doesn't need to spell out that direct connection to it because we know we know that she just learned about all this stuff. And I, yeah. I, I really liked that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So she thinks about the fact that she does indeed like capes. She thinks they're cool. She's even imagined what it, what it would be like to be one. And she thinks when she reflected on the fantasies of childhood and adulthood, both, it was the moments that stuck with her endless replays in her head of a given monumental scene, the crux of a decision. So it's pretty cool how Wilo sets this up here, this, concept of natalie's psyche being fixated on wanting these big moments these pivotal moments where she can make a decisive action and make a difference Uh, but as we learn in the in the beginning parts of this chapter that's not really her she's a rule follower she doesn't even speed when nobody's around she's not spontaneous but the fact that we've set this up gives us a beautiful place to lead into yeah it's such it's such an efficient way to really define this character. This is a character who we've understood from the outside for so long. And now we're being you know, thrown into their head and we need to very quickly, because we only really have a chapter to do this in establish, you know, who this character is, what are their wants? What are their needs? And I think this does this so efficiently now, like 
this the the moment the having the moment is clearly what Natalie wants and what Natalie has wanted her entire life. Um, it, if this were like a Disney movie, Natalie would be singing her I want song right now, like on top of a mountain or something. But mm-hmm. but we th- this is this is this is why I love this so much. I love these these character focused interludes because they're just this mini story because we 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 introduce Natalie, we define her and then immediately after this we put her in a in a conflict which will challenge her current nature it'll challenge this idea of a person who um is a by the rule checklist type of person with with what her desire is which is this big moment the spontaneous heroics um i i i just i just love the idea that we in in just this little chapter we do this so efficiently it's like this is like a little short story and yeah it kind of relies on the stuff that came before it but i like to think that if we didn't no Natalie before this, this would still function as a chapter, you know, like I think I think there's enough explored about her here that she could still function as a character if it was just this one chapter on its own. Definitely. And I think it recontextualizes her so much yeah. that it's one of these things where when you do reread the story, you're going to have a different Natalie in your head because you're going to have, oh, well, this is now I know who Natalie is. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I'm not just having the like impression of natalie via victoria and i love i love that big moment idea because i think that's so relatable and i think that's a word that you could use for this entire chapter which is relatable because i think everyone has at some point in their life wondered you know what would happen if i was presented with one of those big life moments those moments where i have to make a decision and that my decision could you know change everything and I I think that's such a relatable thing, especially for a person who likes people with powers, likes to be around people with powers and but does not have them themselves. Yeah. And we like to imagine that we would do awesome in those situations. Sure. And, yeah. and and also that it would like feel awesome. And, you know, pretty much whenever you're in an emergency situation, it definitely doesn't feel awesome. <laughs> and like if you're lucky, you do awesome. But in retrospect, it never feels like you were responsible for that, you know? Yeah. It depends on context quite a bit. And the, I mean, the other problem is those moments so often don't feel like moments until after they're over. Right. Like, yeah, uh, it, things things happen so fast. And this is kind of what we see throughout this chapter is Natalie, like, thinks this is a moment. Maybe uh, it's gone. Yeah. Um, and of course, she'll finally get one at the end. But we'll get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Natalie goes inside and says she's ready to, t- to take Kenzie home, uh, but tells her not to bring too much stuff. She thinks about asking Victoria about the wretch, but she doesn't. She lets the moment pass. Yeah, which is a great link to what we were just talking about, right? Like she sees for a fleeting minute, maybe this was a moment. Uh, nope, nope. Yeah. Missed it. Right. Um, I think it's very interesting how she phrases this, though. And I think it shows a window into Natalie's more observant nature. Because um, she says here she had questions and she couldn't ask. Others had questions and they wouldn't ask. So Natalie recognizes that she's kind of still not a full member of this team. She's kind of an outsider as, as a non cape. She feels like it, it's not her place to ask these questions. Like she can't, I can't do this. It's not my place. I can't ask about the wretch, but she also is kind of tuned into that dynamic of the team at this time. And she knows that while the rest of them can ask these questions, uh, they won't. And I think that's, that's real. That's a really great window into like Natalie's been here the whole time and just been watching these people and observing and, has a great idea of the dynamic of this team more so than I think anyone gives her credit for. Yeah, no, I I think that's exactly right. And and I think that if she were to ask right then, I feel like Victoria would 
Victoria still kind of has her at arm's length at this point. That may change in the course of this chapter, but I feel like knowing knowing Victoria that she wouldn't necessarily respond positively to Natalie asking about this. Yeah. Um, whereas with the other team members, she she wouldn't be thrilled to answer the question, but at least she would be like, yeah, you know, you have the right to know or some, something along those yeah. lines. Yeah, so. I, th- I think you're right. You know, sometimes... Sometimes it's okay that we let those moments pass, Natalie. Yeah. Sometimes it was it was a bad moment. Right. Yeah. Sometimes the reason you hesitated was that your subconscious or even conscious was telling you, don't do it. Yeah. So, uh, hey, though, we get to see Victoria from the outside here, which is uh, something we've been wanting to, to sink our teeth into. Yeah. Um, Victoria seems like it's a week after her cat died. And notably, it doesn't seem like Victoria stares catatonically into space for five minute stretches uh, and i think the fact that victoria actually does outwardly seem like fairly put together if a bit you know a bit upset but not that upset this is what allows her team to miss how not well she is actually yeah i think that's a really a really great point victoria has just gone through probably one of the worst nights of her post gold morning cape career right like mm-hmm. we talked about last week about how much she, we like saw her regress step by step throughout that program she's in really bad shape but we've just established in the story that natalie is really observant and even she says she looks like a, a person who whose cat died a week ago and they finally managed to um put themselves in an okay place, which is like, I mean, yeah, like your pet dying is rough and I I don't think I'd be fully over if any of my, um, any of my animals died after a week. But the fact that she looks like, okay, a week after pet death, she's pulled herself together when I don't think, I don't think that's an accurate representation of where Victoria is mentally is I think a testament to how well she, she gives off that vibe to someone, even to even someone as, as observant as Natalie is. Yeah, no, I, I think um, I, I, I think that that she's she's holding it together um, and she has these moments of like intensity and, and like like basically these moments where um, Natalie compares her to uh, her mom mm-hmm. and, and and like Natalie reads those in a certain way. And I wonder what Victoria is actually thinking in those moments. I wonder if I wonder if it's accurate. Like, I wonder if Natalie's right in saying like, well, she's she's stealing herself the way Carol does sometimes. Like, well, I wonder if that's something else, actually. Yeah, it I was mean, just an interesting she, thing that I know. I think it's a good point. Is she stealing herself or is she going down a memory rabbit hole? Um, and yeah. that's just what she looks like when she does it. That's a good question. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, she does yeah. kind of zone out still here a bit, though, Matt, because they're having a conversation where Natalie asks her, how are things? And. She says, do you mean overall or with me specifically? Which is, I think, is a hilarious question because, like, just answer the question. Like, it's yeah. she, like, I don't think Victoria, I said this when I was tweeting, but I don't think Victoria will give any information about out to herself unless, like, she's specifically asked. So it's like, I have to make sure you're specifically asking me about myself or not. But um, we see her gaze is heavy and searching. And then this, the context here when it says Victoria, when Victoria did answer, she said, which I think implies time has gone by, right? Like the wording there implies that this was, she was slow to come to an answer here. And so she's just kind of, you know, looking out, not looking at anything in specific thinking, searching. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, 
there's there's so much you could read into the fact that she's like not she doesn't want to answer right like she yeah. she clearly doesn't and and then she and then she her answer is basically like a, a, she demurs basically yeah. she's like yeah i'm going to talk i'm going to talk about everything except myself actually because she doesn't talk about herself she talks about the the overall situation yeah i, I think so. it, yeah she says both i guess and victoria's answer is same answer for both it's going to sting at first we anticipated that so like she she says same answer for both but then in her explanation immediately goes into the overall answer right and yeah. she immediately goes into a we and of course not only is she doing that but she's kind of reframing everything like we t- this was a disaster like this was a total disaster but in victoria's mind this is exactly what we wanted because mm-hmm. there are enough people positive about it that the teams that were with them, as she says, my parents' team made a sounds like a yes, Shore Watch is a yes, Azure is a yes. Like if she's decided her primary goal here was to get out there to keep her te- to keep her organization, the Victoria Hero organization, together, and they accomplished that. So, hooray! Everything else is fine. Right. Yeah. And, and we're, we're not going to talk about how I'm feeling yeah. because, yeah. And I think, I think it's very important to bring that up too, because I think in, in a few minutes we're going to see Kenzie make a very similar argument, but I think Kenzie's argument comes from a, a place of absolute truth in her, her happiness with how this thing, whole thing played out. Whereas Victoria's I think is kind of deflecting and, and not really handling how she's feeling at the moment. Yeah, I mean, Victoria is doing a pretty big silver lining thing right. where where like she's she's contextualizing like, w- you know, one in 10 or whatever it is, people being positive uh, in, in their response and everyone else being negative as like, well, you know, it could be worse. And yeah. it's like, yeah, it it could. It could be worse. <laughs> you're right. Um, you're still allowed to be upset about how it is, though. Yeah, absolutely. You You can you can go ahead and admit that this is not the way you wanted things to go. Like, yeah, it, the, you, you, saying it, it's the reception we wanted is that that doesn't have to be true. And, and and you can be upset about the fact that even the best case scenario sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Like 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 even if you take her at her word and, and assume that she's being completely honest, that this was actually um, perfect, it, it, like this was as well as it could have gone it's still okay to be pissed off about it. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and hurt like it, like, yeah, I feel like it's, I think that it's the negative side of the warrior monk, right? Like she, she doesn't want to lose control in a bad way, but she can't let herself feel in a, like it's okay to be hurt and a, sad and scared and confused about all this stuff. And she just mm-hmm. doesn't, she just doesn't want to do that. But mm-hmm. I, I love, it's like such a small little beat in here where when they start packing up to leave and everything and Sveta says she's staying with Victoria and I'm like, we don't get to see what happens there, but I'm like, Oh good. Like your, your friend, the one who knows more about you and what you're going through than anything else recognizes that even as you're putting up this front, you need some one-on-one time. And I, I think that's just wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's, that's, I didn't, I don't think I even noticed that for being what it was, but yeah, that's totally Sveta being like, I'm going to hang back and act and actually see if Victoria is okay because she's not going to tell Natalie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So Kinsey and Natalie go and get into Natalie's beetle. Uh, of course she has a beetle and they put her off. I shall name it Atlas the beetle. Yes. Excellent. 
Uh, Kenzie's acting very subdued, and Natalie checks in with her. Of course, we know that subdued Kenzie means happy Kenzie. I still can't get over this long con with Kenzie and her behavior, right? And and how it continues to play dividends here chapters after we learned about the reveal, right? And there, there are honestly times where I kind of forget that smile equals bad, that energy is performative, and that this version of Kenzie is probably her at her most content. And I think it doesn't help that we're in Natalie's head now. So we kind of see it through that perspective, because there was a moment when I was reading this, when I was like totally with Natalie, I was like, oh, something's going on with Kenzie. And it wasn't until a little bit into the reading that I was like, oh, wait, no, this is this is her at her like when she's doing good. Yeah, right. Kenzie's actually easier to relate to by far when you understand this about her, because like, I don't know, like when when things when when I feel really satisfied about something, I'm not like bubbly and smiley about it usually i'm just i'm just like i would be looking out the window with kind of a like grim satisfaction rather than you know uh chattering about it and and as we know kenzie's chattering is usually a cover for something else yeah and this is another moment where we get that nice amber symbol here the amber light of the street lights swept into the car's interior a chance trick of light playing off her eyes making the natural moisture appear to be glowing yellow orange so this is another moment and i think the cool thing about this me is, again, why now? Why did we do this right now? Well, Natalie is sitting here in a car with Kenzie, worried to death about her. And I feel like this is a, a signal to me that, like, in the back of her mind, she's thinking about that that alien that's in her head. She's like, she 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 looks down. She's not sure what her behavior is about. Um, and then in the back of her head, there's like this this thing, this is this thing that she just learned about. And I just I just want to reiterate how much I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to save. I just thought of something here, but I want to save it till much later in the podcast. All so right. Hopefully I remember that I wanted to talk about this when we get there. <laughs> All right. I, I, did, I did want to briefly talk about Kenzie's and her rationale for why she's so happy right now, because I, I, I think this is such quintessentially Kenzie and I love it. Like this, this idea that even if one in 13 people like her after the, after this whole thing, that's still a times infinity improvement. I, I love this so much. And, and like, like we talked about, I think Victoria is looking at it as a way to find a silver lining here where I think Kenzie just in all sincerity sees this as a wonderful turn of events. Um, yeah. And the the thing I like most about it is she says infinity, right? This is an infinity times improvement. But more importantly than all of that, the team had her back. Breakthrough had her back. And, and, and she lists this as infinity plus five. It eventually moves up to plus six and she's not sure about Chris. Um, but I think I think I love that she says infinity plus five or six because it, it puts like structurally like an emphasis on the five over the infinity is like, yes, those those infinity better situation but also these five that mm-hmm. and i care about these five more than anything so it's like it's like her team just went through a test and and kenzie looked at this whole situation as are they gonna bail on me like now that this stuff's exposed again are people gonna leave me behind like they they have in the past am i gonna lose them have i blown it and they stuck around and they defended her and it's like they passed and that's she's thrilled about that yeah, yeah, and this has been in in one sense or another set up for her entire character arc. You know, yeah. she, she was the one who was the most upset by far when the team was talking about breaking up after the fallen incident. Yeah, um, and and we and then we came to understand much more deeply why why she is this way. 
Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's very, you're very happy for her in this moment, actually. And, and like you said, you absolutely buy that she's, she's actually happy. She's mm-hmm. actually really happy. Yeah. But not entirely untroublesome, Matt. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So Kenzie then goes on to suggest that she should help Natalie get with her friend with benefits, Tony, uh, and be, so that they can be boyfriend and girlfriend. Yeah, this is kind of a red flag moment, right? Like Kenzie getting involved in relationships is a uh-huh. troublesome. Yeah. Um, but I, I like this. I mean, this is a great way to introduce and really start focusing on the relationship with Tony, which I think is a very important part of, you know, how Natalie defines herself and how she sees herself as how she treats this relationship. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 we're, we're introducing that concept here and we're going to we're going to play with that as we move forward. Yeah. Um, and also, it's worth pointing out that Kinsey does take no for an answer here. Yeah, I mean that is, well, I mean that she says sort of. she says she says she does. She she brings it up again later, but yeah. I don't think she's gonna. I, I don't get the sense Kinsey's going to like surprise Natalie with some tinker intervention where she's <laughs> you know done something. Yeah, I hope. <laughs> I locked you two in a room together because I thought it would be good. Yeah. Also, yeah. there are cameras. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's interesting how Kenzie reiterates what Victoria said back at the base that everything in the TV interview went according to plan, despite Natalie thinking it was a disaster. Yeah. Yeah. But like I said before, I, I think Kenzie's being like sincere here. Like, I think she really does think everything went great because yeah. her because her team stuck by her. Right. But not just not just that it went great, but that it went according to plan specifically. Like, like, really, that was I mean, are you. Like, was that actually the plan was okay? <laughs> well, I know, wonder, if, I mean, uh, surely, surely using her power on the audience wasn't part of the plan, but, no. um, I mean, yeah, I, I get, yeah, I'll, I guess, I guess we have to take her at a word about this. Well, I wonder if that's a reflection of, you know, Kenzie's plan for this whole thing was maybe different than Victoria's was. And, mm-hmm. and her plan was, let's see if breakthrough backs me up. Let's, let's go yeah. out here and see and see what my team does and yeah hey look it went it went according to, to plan or yeah. she'd like secretly arranged this whole thing matt and she's actually yeah. like really bad yeah maybe we'll see i don't actually think that's true i don't i don't either but it's always good to throw those crazy predictions out there yeah i mean that that was that was the whole scott speculation game matt i just threw them out there and then sometimes you hit on them and you look like a genius yep yep I don't know. Your hit rate was pretty high, Scott. It wasn't. It was not that high. But anyway, it was pretty high. But so so they get to uh, Kenzie's house, and uh, Tony is there, the 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 friend. Um, and Natalie's interaction with Tony is kind of cute here. But tell me if I'm reaching. But it seems to me like this is being used as a sign of her doormat personality that she allows it to continue to be a fuck buddy situation when she obviously wants it to be a dating situation. Yeah. I don't think that's too much of a reach. I think Natalie has a general problem of, you know, saying what she wants and doing what she wants sometimes. Like, like she is that checklist person that the person who doesn't speed, who follows the rules. And in, in some situations, not all situations, but in some situations when she doesn't have a checklist, when she doesn't have the rule, she, she kind of clams up and we've seen that, you know, maybe not through her perspective, but we've seen her kind of back off in arguments with the rest of the team at times and not speak up when they're talking about things. I mean, she does sometimes, but 
we, we've kind of seen this before. And I think this is, this is another example of this, that she, she might want something out of this. And there's no indication here that Tony is like taking advantage of that aspect of her personality at all. Like I don't want, I don't want it to seem like we're like ragging on Tony for walking all over her or whatever. I don't think that's, I, I think at best he just is not clear with where she wants the relationship and she's failed to have that conversation with him. Right. There's, there's not even necessarily anything that looks at all unhealthy about their interactions. It's more like, she clearly wants it to be a dating thing and he doesn't know that at all. Yeah. So and he's, he's, yeah, I mean, he might too, but he doesn't, it would, she has not expressed that to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So w- before we move on to the next thing, Matt, we had to talk about clothes cause this is Ward. So, um, we have this moment where Natalie is going upstairs and, and putting on her, her p- PJs and she's trying to decide what she wants. And the text says she had two sets of sleep clothes, which included a flannel two piece set with a button up top with a collar and then the nighty she'd bought but never worn. Modest enough to wear around Kenzie without feeling weird. But Tony would like it if he liked anything she wore. She agonized over the choice and wished that she had some sense of what was right or appropriate or good. She second guessed herself. Then she second guessed herself again. And then, of course, Matt, she she chooses the flannel. Um, she goes the safe route. Yeah, I, right. I really like this because I think it both gets us to kind of understand the Natalie fashion issues that Victoria was so happily pointing out throughout the book so far. Um, she's kind of very uncomfortable and insecure with that kind of stuff and, and is not willing to take chances. So maybe stumbles into bad fashion that she's not fully aware of. But I think it's also a nice summary of like Natalie's root issues. And I think it's important we do this in this moment right before She's about to have her change here. Um, Mm -hmm. Natalie, when she has a checklist to follow, when she has clear priorities, that kind of stuff, she's great. Like nothing phases her. She, she will go through it. She um, does all this stuff, but she wants these moments. She wants these big moments, but these moments that she wants so much that she's wanted since she was a kid, they require, a decision, right? Like it's a moment because you have to make a choice. Do I go left or right? Do I ask Victoria about the retronaut sexy nighty or, or safe flannel? And it, it seems like as she's kind of chasing these moments and wanting these moments, when some of them come up, when the lesser moments come up, she can't choose. She agonizes over the decision and, and, and then, and then regularly goes with a safe one. Don't speak up. Don't ask, don't choose or, or choose the safe thing. And I was thinking about this because she says she goes into law in this chapter because she thought that, you know, being in the courtroom, being in a trial would give her those big moments that she wants. And I think, sure, maybe that was her original, you know, desire to go into law. But I think law is also kind of a blanket for Natalie because it's a checklist. It's it's you can do this. You can't do this. You can go here. You can't go here. It's it's order. And it makes sense. And it doesn't require those those tough choices. Yeah, and, and it doesn't require as much spontaneity. Like yeah. if, if you're a lawyer who's done their job, then you've done all your preparation the week before the trial or whatever. Right. And uh, you probably aren't going to be like improvising too much. Yeah. Um, and and also it's sort of a trial. A trial is a form of conflict, but it's a highly ritualized and sanitized form of conflict where nobody's going to get 
punched in the face. So. And there, yeah, there are rules. Yeah, you can't. Right. There are things you can't do and things you can. And if you yeah. if you break those rules, you will be stopped. Yep. Um, so it's 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 a moment, but it's not the type of moment she's, I guess, wanting or looking for. I, it, we're gonna get there. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right now. Yeah. So she heads upstairs to see Kenzie to bed, and that's when there's a loud crash downstairs. Uh, and the text says a heavy crash downstairs made Natalie freeze. It was a moment, not a fleeting one, not a missed one, or the sort that hit so hard it rippled, making the decisions that were to come after it that much more difficult. It was the kind that she'd thought about as a kid. Yeah, and so finally she's thrust into this thing that she's been wanting her whole life. This is this is a moment. It's not going to escape her grasp. It's 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 not missed. It's not a one where the decision is hard. And what does she do? Does she agonize over the choices? Does she freeze? Does she sit there in indecision? Does she hide? No, she fucking springs into action like a motherfucking boss. Mm -hmm. And it's great. Yep. And so to carry on our theme from the discussion question of of tension. um, So I want to talk about how this scene begins. Okay. So Natalie texts the police and then Gil Patrick and then starts texting Victoria when the goons come up the stairs. And the whole time she's been doing that, you know, you know that they're coming. So you're like, come on, hurry, finish texting. And then after Wild Bill gave us this shred of hope that help is on the way because she texted these people. Now she looks down and she sees that there's no cell service. So the hope that you had is stolen away <laughs> painfully, which makes it much worse than just never having been given in the first place. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. It's like it's just a quick subverting and shattering of expectations. And and I think the the best way to look at how um how well this works is to imagine the scene had it not been that way, right? So like if we look at the scene and she pulls out her phone and notices no signal before she even sends the text and says shit, no signal. The result ends up being the same, right? Nobody's coming mm-hmm. to help. You're alone. But so much of engaging writing, as we talked about on our discussion question, is is managing of tension and pushing and pulling it and controlling it and and releasing it and raising it. And Wildbo's got you here and he knows he does. And he uses that in this little moment where it's just like a little just a little moment to to make sure you're in and you're with the, the story. And it's mm-hmm. great. Plus, it also leaves a little air of mystery. Right. Because like. She wasn't paying attention to the phone, so did the text get out? Probably not, but maybe it did. Maybe. Right. Yeah. I mean, just, and plus the whole context of what's happening here, like you've got, you've got like a home invasion with no no heroes present and numerous enemy capes present. It's just yeah. such a like, oh shit, you know, we really get like really bad situations that are just obviously losing situations usually there's some like okay well there's going to be a fight now yeah this 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 wasn't going to be a fight this was going to be a brutal violence in kidnapping yeah so. and, and yeah i love how the scene is written just in general and because this is how normal normal people react in situations like this yeah. there's you know like, like in terms of how natalie thinks because there's none of this like shard driven blunting of the fear or shard provided series of of superpower based solutions that we tend to see with the other characters. There's just the fear of a knife and 
this complete focus on the immediacy of the moment. Yeah, I love that. I, I love that so much. I think we kind of get spoiled in this book sometime because we're so often the head of people with powers. Even in the interludes, a lot of the times we're in the heads of people with powers. So we see like a physical conflict come up. And just like you said, it's immediately like, what creative use of the powers is this person going to do to get out of this this time? But this isn't like that. This is this is a powerless person staring at a knife and we've seen Matt throughout these two books. We've seen bombs that freeze time and monsters that spit acid and and people that can snipe you with a knife and people that rip their flesh off and throw it at you and it explodes. We've seen some crazy shit. But here in this moment, in this point of view, a guy standing in front of you with a knife in his hand is worse than all that. It's 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 enough because mm-hmm. what can you do? Right. And, and the scene successfully, I think puts you in, in that position yeah. because I mean, it's very, very easy to imagine like, Oh, I'm in a room with an assailant who has a knife and I'm unarmed. Like I don't, I'm not going to use a combination of spider silk and, <laughs> and, and, and a counterweight to deal with this problem. Like I just, I am like, well, I have my hands. I, I'm going to get fucked up no matter what, you know? Um, yeah. So, and then we have this moment from Kenzie. I'm the hero here. Kenzie said, insistent, dead serious. Let me protect you. Um, Scott, stop chopping onions while we're on a podcast. I'm sorry. My, I had to cook dinner tonight. Um, yeah. Well, you're making me tear up over here. My baby girl. She's all grown up. I'm so happy for her in this moment. It's such a wonderful hero moment for Kenzie. But even notice after this, that Natalie still like is making choices in these moments as the guy moved knife in hand, she put herself between her and Kenzie. Kenzie says, let me take care of this. I'm the hero. Let me protect you. Natalie is saying, no, it's my it's it's literally my job to protect you. Like, that's that's what I'm here for. And she yeah. stands between them still. She's a fucking badass, man. Yeah. Like, this is I mean, this has got to be like, I mean, it's a, it's her dream come true. She might die. But um, like, I think this is this is the reaction that every single person in the world wants to to have when they're in this moment, like every single one of us want to believe that if someone breaks into our house right now with a knife in hand, you're going to stand in front of someone else and say, no, I've, I'm protecting you. It's it's what I have to do. And I'm going to be the strong, brave, decisive person that I want to be. Everyone wants that to happen. Um, we so rarely get challenged on that to know. Right. We so mm-hmm. we so rarely get those moments. We in our world so rarely get these moments. They live in a world where there's superheroes everywhere. So, I mean, I feel like the 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 opportunity for a non cape to get a moment like that seems so much rarer to me because they have relatively so much less power in those moments. But we get it here. She gets her opportunity and she's succeeding wonderfully. Yeah. And she also isn't really thinking about it. And I yeah. find that highly realistic, too, that anytime you're in an, in an emergency situation, you, you're not like, well, the good, the, a good person in this situation would do the following. You're, you're just like, you either act or you don't. Right. And, and, and it's immediate and almost reflexive. Yeah. And that's, you know, that, that's, how, that's how we work as animals. And I think that's the only way you can kind of find out what you're made of is yeah. to actually be put in those situations because otherwise you literally can never know. And she finds out what she's made of here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just a l- little bit of a focus on Kenzie, too. Like, she, she's, she's awesome here because, like, all she has is her hairpin. She doesn't have any of her other gear. 
and she still beats all these assholes basically <laughs> i mean i mean beats to the extent that she escapes from a highly superior force like i mean she's using a lot of cleverness under fire like she uses the information she gathered beforehand to psychologically derail Colt, which which is you know f- actually fairly necessary in, in how this fight evolves. Yeah, she's an absolute badass. This is great for Kenzie, but this is Natalie's chapter, Matt. So yeah. I want to focus on her. Fine, because Kenzie Kenzie starts kind of trying to to manipulate Colt, and and we have this moment where Natalie, where she she says she had no idea what she was supposed to do. It was another moment, and she could only trust. And then she kind of follows. Kenzie's lead and starts talking to Colt and th- there's no checklist for this. There's no rule that says this is what you're supposed to do. This is another moment. And Natalie seems done with letting these moments pass her by. So she makes another choice, a choice to trust Kenzie and follow her lead. And I think it's absolutely wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And she has this, she right after this, she kind of has this moment of introspection. Like you said, she wasn't thinking and processing through the choices she's making and she's not, but I, I do love that in this moment, she gets this, this a little introspective here where she like, how could she feel so weirdly calm like this and panic to the point of crying over an exam for a class she was doing so well in, she could be held at knife point with zero idea of what to do and be almost okay. And yet when her sex buddy said he wanted to fuck her, she didn't know how to deal. As a kid, she'd imagine getting powers and facing down impossible situations and weirdness like this made her think that maybe that's what she was meant for. And I think I think the answer to that is, yeah. And, and that's why I think Natalie's such a fascinating character. She's this person driven by rules. She doesn't want to break the rules. She doesn't speed. She follows checklists. She has such a difficult time with some of what most people would see as the easiest decisions. But when those big moments come, those moments she's waiting for, She's a hero and she doesn't need powers to be one. Yeah. The mundane hero. And that's, that's a, that's the thing we don't see very often in these stories sometimes, but, um, so yeah, so the, she's standing between Kenzie and and the male thug and he pokes Natalie in the sternum with his knife. It's called stabbing Matt. It's a stabbing. It's such a light stab though. It's just a minor stab. (laughs) she's, She's fine. Yeah. Just a little poke through the skin. So Kenzie then gets in to back off and then fake surrenders and then uses her hairpin to generate a visual distortion that lets her get a grip on his arm. Natalie then drives him down the stairs with a body check and then they barricade themselves in Irene and Julian's bedroom. Teamwork. Yeah. I, I love that, that we got to do this in this moment. Like we give Kenzie like her cool trickery, right? Like we give her that moment where Kenzie helps out, but we don't take away, it doesn't take away from what Natalie has done here. It doesn't take away from Natalie's bravery and Natalie's decision making here. She's still mm-hmm. key to the reason why they survived this whole thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. She's yeah. Yeah. I mean, she could have, if she had frozen up and been indecisive the way she is on inconsequential choices, then yeah, like they would have just captured Kenzie. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I just love this moment for its tension. Uh, Natalie chanced another look outside. Kitchen sink was creating and tossing away things, one in each hand, utensils, vases, toys. He'd found one he was keeping. She could barely see it in the dark. A stick, a stick of dynamite unlit. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I don't know. I just, I, I love this. This It's like a game of cat, cat and mouse they're playing. And um, kitchen sink is a fun, is a fun power because he's continually like creating new problems. Like you, you, you never really have his power in a box yeah. because he's like, well, now I have fire. 
now I have explosives. He kind of can get whatever solves the problem. It just takes him time to kind of cycle through. Um, yeah, that's a, and, it's a great person for the, the lady that loves checklists to go up against, right? <laughs> Interesting. Yes, I like that. So finally, after an exchange of thrown projectiles with kitchen sink, the cavalry arrives. Chris in the shape of an eel wolf is, is the first that we see. Um, and Kenzie says, he came, her voice was soft, infinity and seven. Uh, it's so adorable, Matt. She feels like Chris likes her. And of course he yeah. does. Chris is a sarcastic little asshole, but of course he likes Kenzie. Yeah. It's it's really going to be a bummer, Matt, when we learn that this like entire show idea was Kenzie like intentionally setting it up just to test her teammates. Like, it's just going to really be a bummer, right? Yeah. No, don't say that. Please. I think that's even too cruel for Wild <laughs> Why would you say such a thing? <laughs> I'm challenging. I'm challenging. God, God damn it, Scott. <laughs> We need we need to we need to talk about this off air, okay? Okay, that's fine. Um, so so Victoria flies up and carries her down uh, from the from the rooftop, telling her that their team is going to answer this attack. Yeah, hey Matt, remember when like Victoria was like really lost and and not sure what to do and not sure how to feel about this thing, and then oh look, there's bad guys to punch. Yay. Yay. Um, I think this like we have to we have to mention that the, what we leave this thing with is people are coming after Kenzie. Right. And th that's kind of the end of both of these interludes, actually, that different people are coming after Kenzie. This is a group. Uh, I think this is Love Loss's group. Right. Um, yeah. So they. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and is. we don't they could be working for someone else. We don't know. We don't know why they were going after Kenzie in this moment. We don't know what they were, were doing, but. This arc is named Beacon, Matt, and we're going to get into all that symbolically later in the show. But our characters have stood up on a hill and told everyone, you know, look at us. And some people have positive reactions to that and some people have negative ones. And I think that's what we're seeing. We've kind of our characters have made themselves targets. And yeah, Kenzie it, is is probably one of the um, most visible of those targets. Yeah, she's probably the most easy to find because of the connection with her parents yeah. and all that. It is interesting. Like, I, I don't fully understand why Love Lost's group went after her. I mean, other than the fact that they kind of have a grudge yeah. against this team and, and Love Lost specifically wants her hands on Rain. But it's like, well, OK, I mean, I can I can imagine a reason, but they didn't really tell us. He said he said, like, oh, she's fair game now. Yeah. It's like, well, that's not really a reason to go after her that's maybe a justification well i suspect we will find out i agree so we move on into chapter 8.y from the point of view of william who we don't know who that is yet. william giles and buffy's william watcher. giles yep that's yes exactly <laughs> so it, it takes it does it does genuinely take longer before you figure out who this is yeah um although we maybe we could have guessed um so continuing our streak um, of not knowing who the POV is, we get William running the track in the parahuman prison. His shoes are rigid and extremely painful to run in, but he continues to do it so as not to look weak. Love it. Love it. I love this opening. I love the contrast of his desire to maintain that pace and, and look strong combined with the pain in every step. The, he says the track is a stage and running on it is a performance for everyone else in the prison. But that very performance hurts him. It really establishes not only just how, how miserable he is, but kind of how out of place he is here. Um, he did, like 
as we know from Rain and Ashley, some people can do well in prison. And some people don't. And William with his hurt shoes clearly falls into that that latter category. Yeah. Yeah. He, he is. Um, he's not a he's not a soldier. And I actually didn't really guess who he was. I kind of just kind of blanked on the existence of scapegoat. And I was I was kind of trying to figure out who this might be. I thought maybe like a. Um, a speedrunner or something. I couldn't really remember who was in jail and who wasn't. Yeah, but um, I legitimately had no idea. Yeah. So there's another parahuman running the track with him, Gamble, a changer with a body built for speed and agility. Uh, Gamble is ordered to slow down. Gamble makes a thing of it, insisting that his doctor says he's supposed to run all out or his body will eat itself. <laughs> Fucking parahumans. <laughs> Um, yeah, it is interesting that like I think Wild Bill kind of makes a point here that show that shows like while the guards are being total dicks here and they are and we'll see how how much of dicks they are in, in a minute. Gamble is kind of also like intentionally pushing the envelope. He's got a doctor's note, but he's smug about it. We learned that he's he's like Cole Belcher's inner circle guy who who we learned earlier in this arc is one of the most powerful figures inside the prison. So. Yeah, the guards are being a dick to him, but he's he's pushing it too. Mm-hmm. He's like no, nobody in the situation is really perfect. Yeah, yeah, and this is kind of consistent with the with the behaviors of the of the prisoners that we've seen yeah, to date. Yeah. So the guards decide they will let him run, uh, and they resume their laps with Gamble repeatedly slamming against the chain link fence every time he makes a lap. William though is paying more attention to what's going on, and he notices. Um, that there's kind of something being, I suppose, planned between the guards and one of the prisoners. And then suddenly another parahuman does something to the fence that causes it to injure Gamble, instigating a bad tumbling fall. Yeah, a really bad fall. Fuck these guys. Yeah. Because um, apparently I love Gamble now. No, I don't. Yeah. It's just it's just mean. I think this is another one of those scenes that like Wildbo sets up really well. And, and I, I like... It's going to be weird to say it does it with noise because this is a book and there aren't any noises. But I think the 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 image of Gamble like repeatedly slamming into the fence is just a really jarring image. And and you can even I feel like you can kind of hear it even if it's just something written. And, and yeah. as like William tenses up knowing something is about to happen, we keep getting these moments where he's just coming around the, the loop again and just slamming into the fence again and just again and again slamming as as tension ramps up. I, like I can imagine the scene in a, a TV show or a movie and how you could use that slamming and that noise to kind of control attention there. And it's really, really good. And I think it's, yeah. it's so great that, yeah, these are just words on a paper, but you can you can feel it. Oh yeah, no, I, I can I can absolutely visualize like cutting between showing William's face and like showing his eyes looking around and then seeing the things he's noticing. He's noticing the guards talking. He's noticing people suddenly moving away from each other and th- and this being punctuated by like cuts to Gamble slamming into the fence yep. or maybe just the sound of Gamble slamming into the fence as like the only sound in the scene except maybe like slightly fainter running footfalls mm-hmm. and and then it it all like you said it perfectly builds up to the final time when it just is a, a huge disaster yeah um so then william heads over to help gamble and we finally figure out who william is because he touches uh, gamble and he explores the multiverse of gambles and starts to put together an uninjured gamble by giving those injuries to other versions of uh, himself and i think also other versions of gamble i, I might have misread that 
Um, and as he's doing this, he sees a shadow of a monolith behind Gamble, which represents his power. Yeah, Matt, it's this asshole. So let's scapegoat. We have to I, I feel like we have to do like a quick primer on scapegoat for people who, sure. have, who have forgotten him. So this is the guy that that took Taylor's blindness in the end. Um, he mm. used to work for the protectorate, but during the whole fallen war, he betrayed them and joined the fallen side. And I guess I, I don't remember him getting caught, but I'm sure that happened in this. I mean, obviously it happened in the story, but I don't remember reading that, but yeah, oh, I think he was, yeah, I think he was caught cause he, he was the one who had to, Oh yeah, he was, so yeah, he was of course of, I, yeah, yeah I, I do absolutely remember that. I just, I just, for some reason yeah. I read that as before his turn, but no, that was after his turn and he was forced to heal rain. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and I think it's actually important to point out that, like, Tattletale always had a hold over him. That's why he healed Skitter in the first place. Right. And, like, there's definitely always been something, um, like, like dark going on with him. And maybe something he's try- he was trying to, like, redeem himself from at some point or, or get out from under. Yeah. And, and he wanted to be a good guy and he was trying to be a good guy. And now he's kind of given up on that because of life has just kind of kicked him one too many times um but like it's it's i I think this is a character i feel like we're gonna i feel like this character is gonna be a little bit more important going forward so i think it is important to kind of refresh yeah everything we know about scapegoat yeah um he's a dick he's a dick he's a a little bit of a tragic dick but no he he absolutely is and i think you're absolutely right and i love that when we get to the the hospital scene we kind of see maybe why he's gotten this way Um, but yeah, before we move on the monolith as representative of the shard and the entity and all that stuff, I I love that because we, we, we define that here. And then later in the, later in the uh, chapter, we see him look at teacher's monolith and we see it as one that's like broken, um, and like not, it's different. And I think that's so, I think that's a representation of, you know, which, which of our, which of our two guys, the, the power came from. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, and I think, uh, I, I, I love the description of teacher's power. Like, I think it, I, did, I don't think we pulled a quote, but it's like scraping against the empty space between them or something. Yeah. Just, I, I love that yeah. imagery. Yeah. So back to the scene, scapegoat continues to heal gamble, even as the guards order him to step away. Um, and, and we, you know, we're, we're kind of reminded of how his power works. The cut on the hand transferred to his own body, a dotted line drawn across his palm, raw and painful. The dots were where other Williams had taken some of the burden onto their own shoulders, unwitting and unwilling. There had been a time when he had felt bad about it. God, what a wonderfully fucked up power. <laughs> yeah, it is so fucked up and terrible. But I think this is a really great moment to to define scapegoat here because it 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 helps build the image of a guy who's kind of given up on stuff right he's mm-hmm. he's given up on being good and and we learn later he's kind of just given up on humanity a little bit and mm-hmm. so here's a guy who at one point who hates his power ha- has always hated his power um and at one point felt bad about this thing he was doing to other versions of himself but it's just like life um for being forced to use this over and over again has just kind of beaten that out of him he's he's kind of mm-hmm. desensitized to it now yeah definitely and i, I think that's a, a theme of his character a lot like you said um and for a second we think that he's healing gamble out of the goodness of his heart but he <laughs> actually he actually said, clarifies for us that like no this is a kind of a 
pay it forward quid pro quo type thing where it's more like, yeah, put in a good word with Cole Belcher. Um, and then what's so I just love this. Instead of stopping, he talked to Gamble. This fix is fragile. If either one of us gets too hurt, the injuries will go back to the source. Use this opportunity to take care. The bullet shattered his work like so much glass on its way to demolishing his rib cage and casting him out of consciousness. <laughs> um, and it's it's like, like, and you already know enough how how his power works to know that like Gamble is going to be in such bad shape now, and he's going to be in terrible shape. And it's it's like it's darkly comic. Yeah, actually, this bit of like reversal of expectation. Um, I bet Gamble's not happy about this if he's still alive. No, not 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 at all. Yeah, I mean it's really good comedic timing, right? I mean it's just like timing timing in a we've talked about timing in books before, but it's just it's just so it's so wonderfully teed up. Um, yeah, and it, I mean like and it, it helps that we already know how scapegoats power works. So as he's explaining this stuff, it's not like new information to it. We're <laughs> like, oh yeah, yeah, this is it. you know if you get hit too hard in his power. Ver- uh, Oh, <laughs> you know what? You know what? This feels like a little bit of a three beat because scapegoat healed Taylor warned, warned her not to get nudged too much. And, and they successfully transferred her injuries to someone else. Uh-huh. Scapegoat healed rain that this is like literally the next person that we know of being healed by scapegoat in the story. And, and it works fine because everyone, everyone stays calm and stays hunkered down. This is the third time expectation reversed are you suggesting some sort of multi-novel three beat i'm suggesting exactly that diabolical yes that's amazing. i mean it worked it worked on me whether or not it was intentional because <laughs> because my brain was clearly remembering the stuff from the first book yeah so. yeah no that's great i love it yeah so william then wakes up having been given surgery for the gunshot wound uh, which i have to assume like clipped his ribs because otherwise i feel like he'd be dead yeah but I, don't I mean know. like it demolished his rib cage is described so was it like maybe it, like a glancing blow across yeah. his ribs that that shattered his ribs without penetrating his organs i'm not sure I don't know. well he's he's fine well he's, he's not he'll be fine he's not fine <laughs> he's he's not fine he'll be fine though <laughs> so so on the tv uh is his recovery is um um is uh, on the TV in his recovery room. The nurse is watching clips of a discussion uh, of the discussion of breakthroughs hard boil episode. Uh, and Mayday is also helping to carry this particular PR ball. It seems. Yeah. Um, that's oh, go ahead. Sorry. I jumped ahead. <laughs> no, that's okay. Uh, he, he then uh, snidely comments that the parahumans did indeed fight each other uh, during the end of the world. Yeah. And this is, I think we're seeing Mayday kind of, do his spin right like he's talking about like the greatest honor in the entire battle was when everyone worked together to defeat the evil even when we knew that it was impossible and I'm like you're kind of kind of leaving some stuff out of that whole thing mayday um, yeah but i mean more importantly i think it reflects scapegoat's view of the world right like tristan saw the end as everyone finally coming together. Yes, Taylor brought them together, but we we got out of her power and then still came together. And Victoria agrees. Um, and, and it's this moment of of people coming together. Mayday sees it as that. And maybe he's he's playing it up a little bit for the cameras. Scapegoat doesn't. Scapegoat says even in the end, we were still fighting. Scapegoat says even in the end, we were still slaves to our nature. Um, everything we did, it was for nothing. It was a waste. 
um, what's the point? Mm-hmm. And that's that's him, right? Yeah, yeah. It's all just pretty words. Yeah, yeah. I love that he says that. Yeah. It's all just pretty words. Yeah. Um, I do. I yeah. do think like sometimes I love sentence structure so much and how you know paragraph structure because he says in this moment we fought each other around then different opinions on how to do things. There was infighting, bitterness, old rivalries. Can I get some of that pain medication now that you're not watching as much? So in this in this moment where he's saying like, no, even even in this moment that these other people are holding up as our, our greatest triumph, we were just as bad. And then that same breath that he dismisses that that moment, he asks for pain medication. He wants to dull the pain. He wants to dull the world. He wants to, to dull everything he sees is because it's all shitty and, and disappointing to him. And I, I love yeah. that image. And, and interestingly, his power is something that helps push away pain right. from himself right because the moment uh, they say no to him he does it to himself yeah and and we come to realize that it's not actually just physical pain that he's able to do that with yeah so he then starts using his power to kind of heal himself uh, or at least transfer his injuries to an abstract place where he can inflict them on someone else later um, it's risky to do this though because if he if he loses concentration then the injuries will come back even worse yeah uh, this is i mean the cool thing about all these um, additions to Scapegoat's power that starting with this one and kind of moving into everything else we see he's capable of doing, some with teacher's help, is I think they all like fit, right? Like, yes, Wildbo is, is sitting down in front of a computer and saying, OK, this did this at one time, but I'm going to say it can also do this now. And yeah, it's his world. He can he can create it the way he wants, but it feels like a natural like, OK, it can do a B so it makes sense that it could also do C so like yes it's an expansion of what 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 he can do but um I don't know it just it does it didn't feel like we were breaking the world for this to happen yeah yeah it, it seems it seems very consistent to me I mean I, in fact in fact it all just made sense to me yeah yeah um I, I like this this um perspective here he says, uh, his power afforded him a greater sense of the shape of things. For a long time, it had been masked or protected somehow. His thoughts steered away from understanding it all. Since the golden calf had been slaughtered, the protections were peeling away. From noises he'd heard while with the fallen, he wasn't the only one. Which is very interesting and hints at the direction that things might be heading. I also really like this mention of the golden calf. Yeah. Like, I wonder if the fallen, I wonder if this is if this is scapegoat's private nickname or if this is what the fallen call him because it is a biblical reference. Yeah. Um, I, I, I thought that was cool. It's really great. Yeah. I think this lines up with what we already knew, right? Maybe it's expanding upon it a little bit. We knew, we knew that the entities put a lot of safeguards on the shards before they handed them out, right? To make sure they wouldn't kill the hosts, to make sure they weren't too powerful um, to be able to defeat the entities themselves. And it seems like all this stuff's starting to break down now. So yeah, we've got the broken triggers, um, but maybe we got some other, other issues that are going to come up based on these things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we get quite, a lot of info here, like about how things have changed about scapegoats awareness of the structure of how powers work. Cause he can delve into like a deep pool of universes that splintered off from the moment of Scion's arrival. Um, although travel into that myriad of universes is not possible. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's a lot of exposition, but it's interesting, right? I like this kind of explanation of, okay, you have bet, but it's not, that's not just one dimension. That's actually like a splinter off where it's like an infinite number of dimensions within that dimensional 
pool. Um, mm. It's interesting. Like I, I, I like that at least we throw this out there to say, okay, this is how this works. Yeah. And, and we, we got like a couple sentences of that in Scion's interlude about how he basically bunched together universes yeah. because other, because like there's not much to learn from a lot of universes that are very similar. But what we didn't know necessarily is that like when when scapegoats talking about sharing things with alternate scapegoats, it's like within the sort of like bet branch bundle right. or, or, or however you want to view that, yeah. um, which which incidentally is like pretty like accurate to how the many worlds interpretation of quantum physics actually kind of visualizes things. So, so what you're saying is there's not like a, like an earth elf scapegoat going like, ow. (laughs) I I mean, I think it specifically says that, that all of the, that all of the scapegoats that he's aware of have his power and they all hate it. Yeah. Um, which it I don't does, think he said it, they it, all have his power. I think he said all the ones that have his power. Hate oh, did, okay. Yeah. Damn. I'll have to, I'll have to reread that. Um, it does make me wonder if he could just be walking along and then suddenly like a giant gash opens up on him. Yeah, that would suck. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so he notices, uh, like due to the nature of his power, someone using a dimensional power nearby, but he says nothing. Teacher and some of his thralls arrive. They incapacitate the guards and the nurse. Um, and then he makes a bid for scapegoat services, pointing out that the fallen haven't done him any favors yet. So why not switch sides? Yeah, I mean, and he says fair. Yeah, right. I mean, I would be eager for a chance to yeah. betray the fallen. Yeah. And, and he says, I want to help you, William, and I want you to want to help me. Let's stop problem solving each problem that comes up, giving each an imperfect solution until the imperfections pile up. Let's resolve. Help me help you. Yes. I actually thought about this for a while. I thought about what teacher is saying here and how I think this ties into the themes of the book, right? If Ward is about recovery, and I think at least partially it is, then teacher's plan here fits into that general theme. It's this idea of it's not enough to just keep on surviving, to keep on dealing with problems as they pop up. We need to to fix things. We need to get better. We need to try to get to a, a point of resolution, a point of recovery. This isn't too far from what Victoria and her group are trying to do, right? They're trying to grow mm-hmm. past their issues. They're trying to get better. They're trying to solve and resolve their problems. Now, of course, Matt, teacher, teacher is a bad guy. <laughs> so, yes. so his method of resolution is probably, well, bad, <laughs> But I think I think that's how you construct an interesting villain and an interesting conflict, right? Teacher, Victoria, Gary, Goddess, maybe. Um, they all seem to have a similar goal. The world is broken. Let's fix it. And it's just how they want to do that 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 is the difference in them. And yeah. I think that's how you you like you kind of explore ideologies and critique ideologies in your writing is is you you have all these people that are wanting to do a very similar thing, but from a very different angle and, and see how that works and and how it doesn't. I mean, it's certainly much more interesting of a dynamic than, than like you've got Victoria and then you've got like, you know, evil man who wants to kill everyone. Right. It's like, well, why does evil man want to kill everyone? Because he's evil man. Oh (laughs) yeah. I mean, I mean, that's not something wild Bill would do, Mm -hmm. but it, 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 I mean, it's definitely, uh, yeah, I, I agree that I, I love how it's constructed. Yeah. Um, so in a rare turn, teacher is relatively honest with scapegoat about the downside of his power. 
He admits that accepting the thinker power comes with brainwashing, and Scapegoat decides to take the risk. He touches Teacher, and we see Teacher's power in action for the first time mm-hmm. uh, from the point of view of someone receiving it. Scapegoat is able to store away his injuries without difficulty after receiving this power boost. Yeah, so, so you said, you know, in a rare turn, he's um, fully up front with Scapegoat here. Why do, why do you think that is? Do you think it's just, I mean, so he, this is the question. Does Teacher need consent for his power? And I, I don't think that's true. I think he prefers it, but I don't think he needs it. Yeah, I, I think like my my working theory is that if he doesn't get consent, then he basically has to turn them into a zombie, which makes them much less useful yeah. as a minion. But if he does get consent, then he can probably like use that as a toehold to get whatever level of of power he wants. Yeah. Um, especially with a guy he's about to teach how to specifically shunt off his his control and push it on yeah. another person maybe the, the scapegoat specifically is a guy that he needs to be totally upfront with because the risks that that entails right yeah it, it's it's interesting to see like the, the the nuances of how teacher has treated different people throughout the story yeah. based on what he thinks he can get out of them because he, he will be honest with people or at least semi-honest um I mean, we, we know via Taylor's point of view that he he's always lying when he says that that he can withdraw his control, like the control is permanent, yeah. basically. Um, so that's no. but, but he didn't he didn't say anything about the duration of the control. Now he's too. not lying. Yeah, he has yeah. scapegoat. It's true. You're, you're right. Yeah. So, yeah, teacher brings William through a portal and gives him a primer on Trump's, uh, which I can't help but feel like we're being led to think about more by the story. Uh, then he leads him to the hospital room. Veilfor, you're playing with fire, teacher. Yeah, he's back, Matt. I take back every yep. bad thing I said about Taylor. She should have fucking killed this guy. So, so mm. bad. <laughs> Past Scott, you were being so unfair to Taylor. How could you? Uh, you just made so many people I happy, know, Scott. I know. Um, yeah, this, I think, so. so this is really interesting to me, right? Because like, we have Veilfor's back and, and we're going to do this funny stuff. I'm getting ahead of ourselves again. Let's let's have That's teacher okay. do what he's going to do. OK. OK. So teacher asks him to transfer his teacher induced compulsion onto Veilfor and to take from Veilfor his self-induced compulsion to serve the fallen, to serve and love serving mama, um, which scapegoat now has stored up as a weapon. Yeah. If if that Chekhov's gun goes off. In like a rain direction, I'm gonna be so mad. Yeah, that would make me so sad. I know. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, that, that's something I think we have to remember, right? He has he has that stored up, and and he has that ability now, and that's that's mm-hmm. terrifying. So yeah, I mean, so you and I were talking about this earlier today, Matt, because we were kind of trying to parse through this kind of stuff. So teacher can put this this compulsion on Veil for himself, right? Like he he has the ability to do that. So in my view. I don't think it's necessarily that he needed scapegoat to move the compulsion stuff on to veil for, but rather he needed to take off the self compulsion. So the first one was kind of like a test. Like, look, I think you can do this. Try it out. It's like, okay, now you know how to do this. Now take this other one off. Um, and I, I, that's, that's kind of the way I, I think I parsed it. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense to me. It's also, I'm also putting in non negligible, 
uh, probability on just not actually understanding how teacher's power works yet. Yeah, um, that's and fair. There may be some quirk to it where he, he really does need uh, consent, which I, I, I think we know is not true, but there may be like wrinkles and stipulations that we don't know about yet. Yeah, I, I went digging and I think the quote was um, he says in most or or I don't, I don't remember the exact words, but he, he implies heavily that in almost all cases he gets consent. But through that implication, it means in other ones he has not. So, yeah, um, yeah I, I think I think teachers going to be a big factor in the story and we've got a lot more to learn about him. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So in, in the course of this conversation, we get lots of added info. Teacher tells us a lot. Uh, he says the speedrunners, a.k.a. the new fallen branch, are already under teacher's thumb. <laughs> Goddess is actually trying to avoid war, uh, which I guess makes sense. And the humans that, that are nominally being led by Gary are actually secretly being controlled by Dinah. Yeah, there's so much here, Matt. This is a pretty big info dump that like serves to recontextualize everything. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm so afraid to grab this info and just go like sprinting off down speculation road because... Well, A, it's coming from teacher, and B, we understand so little of the context around it. However, what the fuck, Dinah? <laughs> what are you doing? That's, that's how we're supposed to always feel about Dinah. Yeah, I mean, and like... Dinah's always fucking everything up for our characters. Yeah, and it's like... I, I, like, there's... She always has a reason, right? And the reason has to do with her power. But it's like... Like, that's great, Dinah, but this is so terrible for everyone involved why are you doing this don't worry it's gonna be the best in the end that's what you always say and it's always bad yeah you know what dinah you didn't actually save the world last time so <laughs> matt the world exists so technically technically yeah eh? you could have done a better job dinah <laughs> but yeah i mean i mean this is he i like i think more than ever, we kind of see that goddess, like as we've been talking about for the last few episodes, goddess is going to be whole, a lot more complicated. We learn that the reason goddess is is um, recruiting from the prison is because like uh, teachers kind of got her penned in. And so she's desperate and reaching out and she's recruiting too. we see she's recruited a healer. So that seems like confirmation that that this meeting we saw with Amy was not just, hey, you want some dumplings? It was like right. we're on the same team now. So uh, lots of stuff here. Not sure how to contextualize all of it yet, but that's very intentional. Yeah, no, we're definitely being reminded of that. Yeah. Um, so as as uh, as uh, Scapegoat is kind of wrapping, you know, mentally wrapping up the chapter, if you will, uh, we get this passage. He was aware of all of the faces of alternate William Giles's the successes, the failures, the broken, the fearful, the triumphant. You couldn't really see their faces or make out details any more than he could know the nuance of grains of sand on a beach, but he knew how diverse they were. It was in recognizing just how many different ways he could have turned out that he could shrug off the role and the identity that William Giles, who had sulked and kept his head down, trying to look tough while he waited for his family and church to find their feet and bail him out, that was gone, transferred away, like any disease or cut. He could become something else. It's like, oh my God, this is like the most foreboding thing in the world. This is like the setup of 
just an absolutely terrible remorseless villain right yeah i mean and i think it's great because it i think it works on the metaphorical and the literal like he could possibly literally like shunt away um personality traits and emotions right like like Mm -hmm. he could possibly have that that literal power but also just like on a a more you know image based level the ability to see every possible outcome of your life like kind of like distances yourself from consequence right like it distances yourself from the the things people worry about and the things people it distances yourself from your humanity because you're not yeah. you're not an individual anymore you are all instances and therefore it doesn't matter yeah, you don't have to feel anything you don't want to feel, right. and you're you're not. Yeah, you're not. You're completely disconnected. He basically just became like a fourth dimensional being, like yeah, fifth dimensional being. One yeah, of those. I mean, yeah, it it is pretty extreme. Like, I don't think we're overselling it because teacher does say like you're going to be one of the more powerful parahumans in, in the multiverse, and yeah, we're tempted to read that as his manipulation, but I think it might actually be true. Yeah, on, so on some level. Yeah, absolutely. So the chapter in the arc end in this mild cliffhanger with teacher realizing that Kinsey is watching them, but then saying it's not a problem. Yeah, so we end this, our second interlude with kind of the same way we ended the first, which is people are going after Kinsey. <laughs> she's yep. getting her, she's getting in trouble. I so I reread this entire arc in preparation, you know, for the end of it, and there's a line earlier in the arc where um, someone mentions to Kenzie something to the effect of, Hey, you don't want to be caught recording people. Um, you could end up like being caught by really dangerous people or something. And I think they're talking about like getting in trouble with the law, but that's like literally what happens here is like, she's caught recording a, a, like the worst possible person. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, um, Scott now has some thoughts on, the entirety of the arc. So I'm going to go just go get some water. I'll be no, back. Yeah, I want you to comment as we're going. I guys. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I wrote another essay again because that's what I do. Um, yeah. And, and I actually have um, my own um, thoughts and reactions. Yeah, so, so you yes, just please. you just jump in. So when you know, whenever we finish an arc, we kind of sit with it and we like to have this little section of our podcast where we kind of try to break down the arc as a whole and look at some of the unifying themes and elements that that went across it and when trying to do that for this arc um i sat for a long time thinking about the title of it beacon we talked at the very beginning of the arc about what a beacon is it's a signal a source of light or inspiration a fire on top of a hill or a tall tower a fire and fire imagery has played a big part in worm from the beginning right from the arc titles to character names um victoria matt has named herself after a star which is just a, it's a big ball of fire. Um, mm-hmm. Fire imagery in literature can mean many different things, both positive and negative. It's, it's destructive, it's painful, it's uncaring, but it also warms, it illuminates. Fire can represent knowledge, Prometheus's original gift to mankind. Um, and it, it is in these positive connotations that I think we find the most in Arcade. Um, if we look at this, the first chapter begins with Victoria waiting out in the cold, observing as autumn is slowly and inexorably transitioning into winter. It's going to get cold and the heroes are not ready. This leads directly into the first group meeting of heroes since the wardens were gone. Uh, the wardens have been eliminated and, and the heroes are getting together to try to figure out what they need to do. 
Defiant talks to everyone about the need to put aside our differences and band together once again. And this spurs Victoria into action. And she becomes or is trying to become a beacon for the heroes, a fire in the darkness to ward against the oncoming cold. This whole arc revolves around that, revolves around Victoria's attempt to successfully light that signal fire for the remaining heroes. But Victoria isn't the only beacon, as we learn later in the arc. Teacher is recruiting, Goddess is recruiting, the non-capes are galvanizing around Gary, and Dinah, apparently. Um, Each side in this conflict has lit a beacon to gather people of their own. And further... What is one person's symbol of warmth, of knowledge, of light and truth could be a warning fire to another side. And, and I think it's in that that we kind of see the duality of fire here. So when Rain accuses Victoria of putting out a fire by dropping a bonfire on it, he's right. She's doing that. She's lighting a fire, a beacon. When Scapegoat, in this chapter we just talked about, accuses Teacher of playing with fire, he's right too. Victoria describes the breakthrough base as everyone running around like they were on fire. Fire imagery is all throughout this arc. Yeah, I, I don't want to derail your flow no, here. No, go. But, uh, the, the fact that, that Rain was the one to, to, to make the bonfire comment reminds me of the fact that he has a particular association with bonfires yeah. uh, as, as being, you know, essentially beacons in the night where people gather around them and, and, and socialize and kind of reinforce their tribal affiliation, um, which which is a double-edged sword, right? Because yeah. yeah, they're 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 um finding security and safety, but also the the um milieu in which they're forming that kind of connection with each other is a poisonous one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think it's that's that's so fascinating to me, but it's it's so often again we see fire especially throughout um throughout this chapter, throughout this arc rather that when it's when we're talking about a heroes when we're talking about a breakthrough when we're talking about victoria fire is seen as the good sides of it right the the illumination the 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 thing that's going to beat back the cold and when you start to frame the arc this way around this idea of fire of light of warmth you start to notice a trend around it just like we've said but you also start to notice something else another element you notice water and water, like fire, tends to have a lot of ready-made symbolism in literature. Um, it is nourishing. It is life-giving. Re-emerging from water can symbolize rebirth, baptism. Water can wash away the past and make you clean. Like fire, though, water can have negative connotations. Storms rage. Water drowns. It crashes. It's dark. It's cold. A flood might be a great way to start fresh, but that means it's got to destroy everything else first. So in this arc, this arc all about beacons and and lighting fires of hope and warmth, what would we expect water to represent? I I bet you found some things. I did. Let's look. All right. So in chapter three, Tristan relates his problems with his powers as drowning, as trying desperately to swim to the shore but unable to find it. He describes it as a boat slowly filling with water with no shore in sight. Now, The meaning here is especially charged for Tristan because he's relating his problems to water and his problems all center around his brother, a person that can literally create water. Um, So I don't know, Matt, does that point to your chocolate theory being success? Right. Yes. We'll see. But regardless, I think we start to see water here as kind of a dangerous consuming thing, a threat, especially to the fire that Victoria hopes to start. 
Uh, when goddess escapes de- detection later in the chapter, how does she do it? By flying underwater. When Victoria describes her feelings during the hard boil show, uh, she describes them as not trying to fi- find the flow of things and steer with it, but caught with nothing to keep us afloat. The water's rushing away to gather strength for an incoming wave. Again, it's no surprise that Victoria goes to that kind of imagery. The, the Leviathan attack on Brockton Bay is one of the most influential moments in her life. And in her mind, it's one of the big events that kind of leads to everything starting to go wrong. But still, the trend here is clear. Water is bad. Water is a threat, especially when you're trying so hard to light that beacon. And we can go on, Matt. When Victoria is reading the messages that come that, that come in after the TV show debacle, one particular message co- catches her eye and it's her own mother who lost her son and she is described as pouring her grief onto the page like water flowing from a waterfall when teacher gives scapegoat his power thus creating possibly the biggest and clearest threat we've seen in the book so far how is that described matt like a shot of cold water extending from the front of his brain to the back with that water he felt a kind of steadiness mm-hmm. so I don't think it's quite as simple as fire, good, water, bad, right? I think the book is a little more complicated than that. But fire and water are all over this arc, and their meaning to me is rather clear. Victoria wants to be a star in the sky, a burning ball of light that illuminates, that warms, that protects, that wards against the cold and all the badness. A beacon. And when this arc needs to describe things that could threaten that, it uses the thing that could snuff it out, a wave that could crash over it and leave the world dark, damp, and cold. It uses water. Yeah. Um, the thing that I was going to call back to um, that I'm going to call back to right now uh, from way earlier is this idea of Natalie, her vision being obscured by uh, the glare of the water through of, of the of the orange light through the fog on her glasses, which yeah. is water and the moisture explicitly the moisture on the windshield, not just like the windshield itself, but the moisture on the windshield. And that to me is mixing fire and water it's and in so doing creating a distortion a a a kind of blindness um and 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 basically when you when you have light it's illuminating when you have water it's it's its own thing but when you have them both together it it forms a chaotic um 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 blockage Uh, and and it's it's almost worse than either by itself Um, yeah and i I mean i didn't even pull all examples of these right there's there's so much yeah. more like if, if you guys take the time go through the arc and look at whenever fire is mentioned and whenever water is mentioned these things mean things they they have meaning yeah. to them they have significance attached to them and i think it's remarkable yeah. how much it fits with this idea of beacon beacon being this arc that's all about gathering people recruiting like every we learn by the end of it that everyone's doing that like the the the, the most of the arc is about victoria and her efforts to recruit people around her but we learn that everyone's doing that. And mm-hmm. then we have this, this clear kind of opposite with all the water imagery we use. And it's almost always bad. Every time we reference water, it's in some sort of negative connotation throughout the story. So, or this arc of the story rather. And I, I just think that's wonderful. And it really cemented for me, like what this arc was about. So that, that is beacon. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it exists in the other arcs too. Like off the top of my head, there's, um, um, Ashley with her water bottle with the water circling the drain, mm-hmm. um, um, fighting the beast out in the water. Yeah. You know, there's, yeah. there's, there's probably more. There's Victoria looking out over the the 
the dark water um, yeah. when she's talking to Jessica Yamada. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it might be. I, I'm not, I doubt I'm going to reread all eight arcs, but I think there's <laughs> definitely uh, definitely more to be found there. Sure. So. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. I, my advice for people would just you know pay attention to these things, right? Like they're they're there. Um, obviously, we're not always going to be right. Some of these could just be, oh well, it just worked for the sentence. But I mean, there's a trend there, I think. And yeah, like it's great. I love it. Yeah. All right. So that wraps up arc eight beacon. Beacon. Uh, the name game for this chapter will go with gamble uh, a a word of french origin for running or skipping around in play hey that makes sense this yeah. fucking weirdo he's got like things on his he's got arm. ape hands yeah it's it's weird yeah it it's, it's looks really disturbing in my head so that's <laughs> well, good. good all right uh discussion question for this week Discuss techniques Wildbo uses to make you quickly empathize with point of view characters. I like it, Matt. I'll write another essay for you. Yeah, I'm. I'm looking forward to people's answers. Yeah, I'm, to this I'm one. very much looking forward to seeing what people come up with. Yeah, and that's all we got for you this week on We've Got Ward. You guys are all part of this show, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. You can reach out to us via email at gotwormpod at gmail or on Twitter. At Got Worm Pod. My personal Twitter is ScottDaily85 and Matt's is at More Dinamail Water. Water. <laughs> if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. Thanks so much for helping us get past 1,000 subscribers on YouTube. We really appreciate that. Uh, we've been, it, it seems like we've been like, just just inches away from that goal for months and now we finally across it so thanks thanks so much anyone who went over there and clicked that button yeah really appreciate that guys and as always you can find this all the other podcasts we do and all of our writing over at doofmedia.com this week on our other podcast channels we will have a new doofcast where we're joined by a special guest to talk all about twitch matt i talk about that that streaming platform where people spend a lot of time yeah, that's uh, that was a really fun conversation. It was. We are we we still have to record the intro and the outro of that episode, but uh, we had the conversation already, and it was really great. Um, also, on Vow to View, Elise and I made each other watch our favorite book adaptations, and it was painful, real <laughs> painful. Oh, good. I better listen to that one. <laughs> Um, yeah, and if you like any of our shows and you want to support us, uh, consider donating to our Patreon account, patreon.com slash doofmedia. You can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Supporting us on Patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting in our quarterly fan art contests, Q&A sessions uh, with us, access to live streams of our recording sessions, and our excellent Discord chat. And special thanks to a whole bunch of new uh, patrons at the Bidoof level. Uh, all all one dollar one dollar donors. Two armed blue and red drapes. Sarah, Lapis Dust, Ming, and Peter, and a new member of the Doof Troop at the ten dollar level. Point me at the fry. <laughs> That's funny. It's good stuff. Doof Troop. Yep. And as always, make sure you head over to Wildbo's Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/Wildbo, and donate to him as well. This is his world. We're just playing in it and if you cannot afford to donate right now that is absolutely okay you can instead help us out by heading on over to apple Podcasts and leaving us a rating interview we don't have a new 
Apple podcast review to read this week, Matt. But did you know that Stitcher has reviews on it? <laughs> nope. Because it does. And in my look, in my going to pull the review from to check Apple podcast today, I noticed that Stitcher has reviews, too. And we had some. So I thought I would read one of those. Um, this one came in like two months ago, but obviously I didn't know that it was a thing. Um, so this one comes from Raven Claw Ra who says after unsuccessfully getting any actual friends to read worm by wild bow, this podcast, well, it's predecessor. We've got worm was a godsend. It was my own personal book club. Matt and Scott do a phenomenal job picking apart each chapter and highlighting everything I love about my favorite story. Having a podcast come out in time with the release of the new story just feeds my addiction. They're hilarious. They're quite clever. Man, we're quite clever. Oh, thank, thank you. you. And a little heart. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, thanks, Ravenclaw. Sorry. Sorry it took so long to find your review. I'm I'm bad at the internet. I didn't know that that was a thing. So I, I, I had a friend who told me that their review apparently never showed up because they used profanity in the title. Huh. So if I'm just mentioning that in case anyone ever had a review that, that they that they wrote but then never saw or heard about why you gotta say bad words guys well i mean bad words are wonderful but bad words i mean can we all just agree that bad words are hilarious yeah because they just are. maybe don't use them in the title of yeah. your review yeah yeah um yeah that's all we got for this week uh we'll see you all right here next week when we cover the first couple of chapters of arc nine gleaming You said it was inferno you were you were way off